and we back. You just tuned into the show, man. We called it the Blind Spotters. Hit that subscribe button, you know you oughta. Go ahead and like and review. Just sit back, relax, and learn something new. Blind we spotters. got Haven on the left, James on the right. When we peel back the layers that were not in sight, Blind we spotters. turn on the spotlight to grab your attention. It's recorded just to help with retention. We got a bad habit of going through life, overlooking aspects that you know just might help you with your next job or get closer with your family. When you got a plan A, you don't need a plan B. You've tuned in to the Blind Spotters with Haven and James. We're back again. Say hi, James. Hello, Haven. How are you today? <laughs> we have uh, a fantastic guest this week, Mr. Jason Strawn, founder of CodeUp. James, please tell us about this. So Jason is the CEO of CodeUp. Um, which is a uh, career a career accelerator school, hmm. um, and it's in, about programming. And so they teach people to program. It's an amazing school. They've got uh, locations in San Antonio is where their first location is. They've since expanded to Dallas. Uh, um, Jason has been CEO of Grok, G-R-O-K, Interactive, uh, which they do a lot of software development and application development. Uh, he still, uh, continues to serve as the chairman of their board of directors. Uh, he's got lots of stuff he does. Um, he's an active member, uh, he's on the executive committee of tech block an active member of Vistage, um, longtime member of geekdom tech star and a fan and a founding member of the San Antonio web developers meetup. Uh, he's got lots going on. Additionally, he does lots of, uh, he's available for public speaking. He's actually done the uh, JS conference, which is uh, the JavaScript, JavaScript conferences, both in Colombia and in Germany. He's been to Medellin to speak in Berlin, uh, does lots of speaking around, and uh, was uh, part of a, a presenter at the TEDx in San Antonio. Hello, Jason. Boy, amazing. Oh, thank you. What an intro. Yeah, wow. I'm impressed. <laughs> I got to meet this guy. <laughs> I've got to go get some chapstick. I dried up just going through it. <laughs> yeah, I'd be, we need to rewrite my bio and get it shorter. That's uh, it's, uh, no, that's fantastic. It's impressive. Much. It's impressive. Uh, I've been very. I can tell you this: do a lot of neat things. Jason, I've I've been fortunate. No, Jason, before most of this, uh, and so I've been, I've had the honor of seeing this bloom uh and just sort of have been awed by jason for a long time just i've been awed by him as a man and who he is and then watched him develop as a entrepreneur um it's just been real impressive um and we're excited to have you on the show thank you very much uh, i appreciate that it's uh yeah it's, it's an honor to be here and i'm excited uh, i'm looking forward to the conversation all right, so tell us what CodeUp does. Right on. So, um, you know, CodeUp's a career school. We're a career accelerator. We basically teach software development and data science in a compressed 22-week immersive program. Uh, both of those programs are 670 hours of live classroom instruction each. So you're in class from 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., basically, Monday through Friday. Mm -hmm. um, 
I say basically because during COVID, we've extended the program by 10% and we've cut Wednesdays down to shorter days to shorten the amount of Zoom fatigue people are getting and stretch the program out longer, but it's continuing to be 670 hours of live instruction. It's not video, even in the COVID uh, world, it's, it's uh, synchronous live instructors. Mm -hmm. And then we have campuses both in San Antonio and Dallas when we're not in a, a global pandemic, then that's where we teach folks. Um, you know, we've always had some pretty impressive employment numbers. Last year, we had 99% employed. We were really uh, excited about that. Mm -hmm. And um, we give our students, uh, graduates, 100% of their tuition back. If they don't land a job in field within six months of graduation. Oh, man, that's, that's really impressive. And we're really glad to have you on because I think it's really important that people don't box themselves in as to what they can and can't do. I mean, I think a lot of people right now are reinventing themselves as, as, uh, as far as a career path, a career path is concerned. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, this is probably going to be a really exciting, uh, talk that we're going to have here today before we get started. So. Uh, we're going to do, uh, some rapid fire questions for you. So, what is this, an interrogation? Sure, asking a lot of questions. We're just trying to get to know you a little better. Rapid fire questions. <laughs> All right, so start off uh, just to get you to know you a little better. Um, what's the biggest factor that has helped you become successful? Oh, wow. <clears throat> that's a, that's a tough one to still down, especially <laughs> right off the bat. Wow. What's the biggest factor? Um, I would definitely say mentorship. If I had to, to give it a word, mm -hmm. um, other human beings that were willing to share either their knowledge or where the knowledge could be found to overcome the next obstacle or the ones that were there to, to kind of push me a little bit when I was ready to just go to truck driving school and uh, call mm -hmm. it a day. So mentor is probably the best word to use for them. Mm -hmm. Although friends, guides, coaches, whatever people along the way. What about you seeking them out or did they, they, did they see that you had a knack for something and they came to you, which, which way did it go? Um, you know, I think that one of the things I've observed in entrepreneurship, um, whether it's unique to my experience in community or not, I don't know, is that when you're out trying, mm -hmm. other people want to help you and other entrepreneurs especially want to help. Mm -hmm. Um, and, uh, I also tell that to young software developers. If you go to a co-working place and you're sitting down writing code or you go to a meetup or something, you'd be amazed how quickly another developer wants to talk about their code with you. It's the opposite of magicians. Uh, and I think entrepreneurs are the same way. It's the opposite of a magician. They don't want to keep their secrets. They want to share them. And when they see that you're um, having a, a struggle, I found, but to answer your question, a lot of them I had to seek out, but uh, uh, several just came along the way and said, hey, I see you're doing this. Have you thought about doing this differently? And a couple of those minor changes changed the course of everything for me. Um, I've got, instead of jumping into another rapid fire question, I have a follow-up question to that, or actually a statement. Um, 
that I'd been thinking about wanting to kind of pick your brain about. Having watched from afar, yet, as, you know, in some ways up close, my question that I've wanted to ask, and I never bashed you, is what I perceived is I feel like you found somewhat of a business partner that was sort of like your, you know, Lennon to McCarthy or vice versa, that you you found somebody business-wise that you meshed with. How much did that impact you? And am I, am I reading into it the power of that, probably for both of you, but how much that business has worked for you? Um, I'm not even sure Absolutely. there's a question there, but go ahead. No, I think it's a, it's a true observation. If you look back on all of my different ventures, um, most of them were failures. Um, well, all of them were up until the last couple, right? I mean, that's uh, um, why we, these last couple exist is because I had such a long string of failures. And you're right. One of the major differences there was not doing it alone, uh, having partners. And then when I found that right chemistry, that right mix with, um, you know, one of the, one of my business partners in particular, uh, we've been able to do some pretty amazing things together. Uh, really, the two partners that I have in CodeUp the three of us have been able to do some really incredible things together. That's probably the best way to state that. Um, and you're right. Having that partnership was um, phenomenal. And we both brought different skills to the table that allowed us to, to do some really successful things, or at least so far have. All right. So next question. Um, what's the most interesting thing you've read or seen this week? Oh, wow. This week, um, I, I, you know, just moved. So one of the things that I moved was probably tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of pounds worth of books, or at least that's what it feels like. Every time you pick up a box that says books, it's just like, what is in here? A black hole? Like, it's just so heavy. I don't understand. Yeah. Um, and putting all these books on the shelves, I've, uh, one of them that I've carried around for decades and have never read, speaking of black holes, is um, A Brief History of Time by Stephen Hawking's. And finally have sat down and begun reading it and was reading it right up until the point of being on this podcast. And uh, I'm thoroughly enjoying it. And I wish I would have read it younger. Um, not that I pretend to be a physicist by any stretch of the imagination, but I find it fascinating that people think about some of these really big ideas. Um, question, what quote or saying do people spout, but it's complete BS. Oh, wow. <laughs> now I gotta go negative on folks, like right <laughs> off the bat. Um, I thought I was like thinking of my favorite quote. Now I think I it's more perspective. I don't think it's- People say that it's complete BS. Oh, wow. Um, that's a tough one. Um, you know, uh, Probably anything attributed to Thomas Jefferson or Benjamin Franklin, because it most likely was said by somebody else. And they're like, oh, it would just be really cool if we stuck one of these two dudes' name on the end of it. I don't know. Um, that's a tough one, and I don't have a good answer. Uh, what's a quote? Uh, I'm at a loss. Scott, I, I, I typically am not, but I am. Our last guest, Scott, gave, me, gave us a good one. He said, uh, be yourself. Oh, okay. So I'm thinking quote more like uh, in the term of 
a reference that people attribute to somebody. And okay, so you uh, can think of that way too. Is a great one. Um, um, you can write that one down and then we'll come back. Yeah, I'm gonna have to think about that one. I'd say that it's. <sighs> Anything that really begins with I could never, um, I think immediately it's, it's, uh, my spidey senses go off and it better be a pretty extraordinary finish to that sentence for me to mm, I like um, that. not disagree with it. And so, I'll, but I'll think about your question, Mark. That's a good one. James? Um, we'll go a little lighter. <laughs> okay, thanks. <laughs> uh if you had a boat, what would you name it? I had a boat. What would I name it? Um, 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 money pit. That's um, <laughs> yeah, accurate. Well, it's because I have a boat. Well, they say they say you don't want to have the boat. You want to know the guy with the boat. Yeah, I think the real thing is rent the boat. Um, my boat hasn't been wet in seven years. Wow. At this point, I don't think you call it a boat. I think you call it a trailer that kind of looks like a boat. That's uh, in a storage lot. At least I hope it's still there. I've been paying on the damn lot for seven years. James, we need to do a, a humble brag drop from now on. No, that's the don't <laughs> buy stupid shit and then go start a company. Um, I wouldn't call it a brag. I think it's a, I should have sold the thing. Every year when that stupid lease renews, I go... Why didn't I sell the stupid boat this year? Uh, I hope uh, it's still there. I really yeah, do. I'm I'm waiting for it to deteriorate for about two more years and then I lowball them. <laughs> <laughs> I got twenty dollars. <laughs> well, I'm do selling you... for twenty bucks right now. Uh, <laughs> you know what? You've y'all heard the joke. What does boat stand for? What's that? Bust out another thousand. <laughs> yeah. It's, oh god. Worst thing I ever bought on Craigslist. <laughs> Oh, all right. Um, what's the hardest decision you've ever had to make? Oh, wow. Um, you know, that's another one that I think I'd have to ruminate on in four decades of you know, making bad decisions. There's probably one that was really hard. Um, but rapid fire, the one that comes to mind the quickest is a couple of years ago, uh, my son had to get uh, 12 vertebrae fused in his back. Mm -hmm. And while it was a no-brainer decision, you, you certainly just say yes when you have what's potentially a life-saving or a certainly life-altering operation as an option. There, there's only one real answer, I think, and that's yes. But that doesn't mean that it wasn't one of the hardest decisions of my life to take a, um, a healthy young man and make a decision that he was going to have to go through a very hard surgery, recovery, and therapy it really was something that he wouldn't benefit from for potentially decades. And um, we did it. And, and uh, but the, I think that was probably the hardest decision I've made. At least. Uh, it's, the, it's the hardest one I can think of right off the top of my head. All right. Well, let's lighten up on that subject then. Uh, <laughs> no, he's great. It's awesome. No, uh, I, he is great. I do. And, yeah. and he, you know, that's one of the surgeries that I didn't realize, but it made sense that when Jason told me about it, he said, he's going to go on an operating table and come out taller. Yeah, he's almost <laughs> two inches taller. He's pretty stoked about that still. Uh, he just surpassed me and uh, he's, he's 14. He's about to be 15. And uh, he just surpassed me in height and he made sure 
that like every relative that he's on a FaceTime with knows, hey, I'm taller than dad now. Watch, I can stand next to him barefoot. Look, I'm taller than him. Uh, <laughs> and I'm like, well, I'm glad you like me. Um, <laughs> so here's here's the follow-up. Here's yeah. the next question. What is the dumbest way you've been injured? <laughs> the dumbest way I've been injured. Um, in grade school, probably. Um, I was in like third or fourth grade. And I thought it'd be fun to run across the, um, the the playground with this like hoodie thing that my mom and baby wear, like a beanie with the little ball on top. And I pulled it down over my face where I couldn't see and took off running. And uh, for some reason, young me thought that was like an incredibly fun thing. Like, look at me, I'm running around blind until I didn't realize that uh, we had those metal picnic tables. I ran right into one and um, yeah, I took dental surgery to fix that one uh, and it was painful, but um, I injured myself pretty well and I, I, I still can't come up with one good logical explanation as to why uh, I thought that was a good idea. And certainly my parents asked me over and over, why were you doing this? And I've been trying to answer that question for decades and I have no idea, but it seemed perfectly reasonable in my third grade self's mind, so. Were you using the force? I think I probably was. Uh, I'm sure that being a Jedi was somewhere in, in whatever the decision-making process was. And um, it didn't work out for me that day, but uh, I got free ice cream. Uh, the school nurse just like gave me ice cream to shove in my mm -hmm. face. And that was like the, 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 the lighter side of that. Should we stop yes. the podcast now? I mean, should we be taking career advice from this guy? <laughs> yeah, probably not. Uh, I wouldn't. Um, I certainly wouldn't. Yeah, not, especially not third grade me. Hey, y'all are the ones asking the question. Oh, that's right. We invited him on. That's right. Okay. Sorry yeah, about yeah, that. Yeah, y'all are. I'm just here. All right. So, so you don't want to use any of that. Great. Let's see what else we got. Uh, <laughs> this is this is actually one of my favorite questions to ask anybody. Awesome. If you if you could know the absolute and total truth to one question, what question would you ask? Oh, wow. Um, who? Um, I think I know the essence of the question to put it into like a more finite, let's see. Um, what or who created this? Mm -hmm. I, I want to know the origin. Um, that's going to leave you with a lot more questions though. Just tell you, it is. <laughs> I know it is. Um, but Hey, hey I promise that, you know, it's going to be start there. Yeah. Right. If you know that, then the rest of the questions, you at least have something to pin them back to, even if they're just hypotheses that you can never, uh, you know, test or know the answer of, you at least have kind of that origin point. And right now, once you go back a certain amount of time, anything beyond that is just pure storytelling. Um, and, and, and that, I think, would, while well, you're right, it would open more questions and doors than it would close. Um, it would give us that, that place, or at least me that place, to have a, a, an anchor for the rest of the questions and thoughts and hypotheses. That's uh, interesting. I, I remember this comedian talking about you know, everybody has all these religions, but what if that homeless guy at the bottom of your building is right? And that all origins started with Klingor. So you find out, 
that clean gore. So, so you're gonna ask. So you're gonna ask, ask. You're gonna get this question. You'd be like, you know, what created everything? And then the guy's gonna say, clean gore. You're gonna say who? Yeah. Klingor. <laughs> Klingor. Well, the hardest part will be fast forward five years when I'm living under some bridge, like talking to people walking by, going like, I know the origin <laughs> of the universe, <laughs> and they're just kind of like, oh man, yeah. let's walk on the other side of the sidewalk. <laughs> but yeah, you don't understand. Um, yeah, maybe it's just wise not to ask. And we right? don't know. Like, like we don't know. like lit. Like this is crazy, but. He could be right. Like we're talking about this hypothetically, sure. But given the situation, mm-hmm. it might happen. Yeah. Everything's plausible. Yeah. <laughs> sure. Right. Like I said, once you go back far enough, anything before that's just a story. So uh, yeah. you know, uh, if you yeah. come up with a compelling enough story, well, I mean, you could shape millennia worth of history. So uh, it's a uh, go ahead, James. Pretty pretty fascinating. Great question. So how many more are we going to go Haven here? Three. Three. All right. Three more. It's the best three coming up, right? The best three. <laughs> I don't know. Um, <laughs> I don't know about that. Um, I'll do, I'll, I'll, I'll throw you a softball. Well, what are your successful habits? Ah, successful habits. Um, I would say one of the, the biggest, um, successful habits I have is giving my accountability to others. Um, I'm not really great at holding myself accountable. So having other people that I am accountable for uh, outcomes to not necessarily accountable to but making sure that uh, I'm accountable for the things that I'm delivering them. Um, Getting to inbox zero daily is one of my bigger habits. Um, And then starting my day with a routine. Um, that happens at the same time every morning. Um, I'm not a morning person. I, I, I actually hate getting to work on time and doing things in the morning and at 8 a.m. every day, Monday through Friday. I'm sitting in front of my computer, checking my email, going through my routine. Um, and I, I, I've seen um, a big improvement since then. I'll, I'll throw in one last one, and that's... Uh, meeting with mentors often and regularly and keeping those appointments and get there punctually always um always uh that's the most valuable time that i'm getting from somebody and you know it's time that i'll never be able to repay them for and so i want to make sure that i'm there i'm prepared that i can um, talk to any of our previous issues and that i actually have questions and topics prepared for that and it's not just water cooler talk um, because I want to value their time and I want them to value that time. Mm -hmm. Um, And oftentimes, again, these are people that I'll never be able to repay directly Um, and and they're not mentoring for a direct um, whatever um, payment they're doing it, I I think to be helpful. Mm -hmm. Um, If you could start all over again, what would you do differently? Oh, wow. That's a great, um, that's a great question. I think the first thing that I would do is, um, the things that I would tell a young me to go do so that I could get here quicker would be uh, quit searching for external validation. Ooh. I think that was a big hindrance in my life. Um, quit trying to do it just because other people uh, think that you should. Um, I tell myself that, um, business is about 
learning the, the key pillars of business and you can learn those through books and experience and to get out there and do it. Um, that the younger you are, the more you can take on risks. So I would have taken some bigger risks younger when it came to uh, business. And um, I don't know that there's never really a right time. You're never really going to have enough saved up or enough skill or enough knowledge. So get out there and start doing it. I think the quicker that you go and do it and, and quit saying, well, someday or next year, um, no, just go out and do it. And uh, it's a lot harder to be an entrepreneur with uh, kids and you know mortgages and car right. payments and stuff. Right. When young me um, didn't have any of those things, he should have been out there uh, risking everything. So anyway, um, no, it's kind good. of rambling answer to your question. But no, that's good. Probably some of the bullet points. Go ahead, Jane. All right. Um, how about um, just knowing you and uh, what, just knowing you, here's my question. Where do you identify with more or get the most gratification from? Is it being a techie in the tech world and a tech geek or being the entrepreneur? You know, that's a great question and one that's uh, changed, I think, and maybe that's why you're asking me. I don't know. Um, but, um, you know, up until my 30s, I had very little pride in what I did. And uh, work was this toil that I went to. And it was a trading of my time and my intelligence or whatever uh, for money. And um, the weekend was what I lived for. And somewhere in my 30s, when I really started writing code and getting into some cool tech teams and writing some really cool software, um, that changed. And I just loved getting up and doing my job. And all of a sudden, I took a lot of pride in what I did. And I'd say then, I'd, I'd say it was being a techie and a developer. And I always was a techie and, and, and wrote code and did techie things and wired things and built radios and all this crazy stuff. But um, I don't know. It was a hobby that I got paid for. It was more like I was exchanging. I don't know. It didn't feel right. Um, so anyway, my first answer would have been techie because that's where I think I first found pride in what I did and loved what I did. And I no longer saw my Monday morning as this horrible place that I had to go. Now I would definitely say entrepreneur and business person um, because at least what I do now, I'm creating more software developers. And that, I, I couldn't have predicted, but that has been so fulfilling for me to know that that, that thing that was so powerful in my life and, and not only financially transformative, but I'd say in my personal life and my mental health and my emotional states and you know all of these ways, that career benefited me greatly. And uh, now I love uh, solving the problem of how do you grow a company and it's a different problem and a different challenge, but uh, I'd say now I'd answer the question, identify more and find more joy in being a business person. So if I added in there being a teacher slash educator slash mentor, as yeah. all that in one and added that in, does that change your answer or does that just sort of morph into the rest? You know, that there's no better job that I've ever had than teaching at Coda. Um, and we haven't really talked about and probably don't need to the history of Coda, but for the first year and a half or so, uh, myself and Chris Turner wrote the curriculum and taught, and the third business partner ran the back end. And I've only been the CEO for three years now. And um, 
so while I've always been one of the co-founders, I was in the classroom. There's no job I've ever done that I liked more than teaching. I never thought I would have said that. I never thought I would have taught. I never thought I would have been an educator. Never thought Code Up would have been what it is today. Um, so all of those were surprises. Um, so yeah, I'd say that my favorite job I've ever had was teaching people to code. Uh, between being a techie and being a business person or entrepreneur, um, I prefer now the business person entrepreneur life, although that's also a surprise to me. Yeah. That's cool. Well, thank you for answering all those questions. <laughs> oh, I have one more. I have oh, one great. more. He has one more. Sorry. Sorry. The Go bonus ahead. question. Is there time for that? The bonus question? Go ahead. Bonus. The bonus. Let's hear it. Come on, James. Oh, I was waiting for Haven to find a sound for me. I, I did. Okay. <laughs> he did. I heard it. Oh, wow. <laughs> that may be as weak as the question. No, one thing I do oh. know is Jason is a, a, he consumes books and in 20, like last year, I love books and I very rarely read. I, it's people on this podcast know I've got four kids. I've got a wife. I, I've got lots uh, going on. And the one book I read that was just a joy book was uh, Jason, uh, Jason strong recommendation, which was atomic habits. Okay. Um, so right now, what are books you would recommend? Two or three, five, whatever, whatever you say, even if it's just one. But what are your, what's on your reading list as an entrepreneur, as a, or if it's you know for joy, whatever, how you want to do it, your book yeah. recommendation. Oh um, yeah, um, you know, I do. I think that books are the keys to to knowledge, and it, you know, if you consume enough of them, you, you can find a, a few seeds here and there. The book that I would think, or the kind of the series, the set of books that I think every leader should read, uh, whether you're an entrepreneur or you're, I mean, really in any industry, if you're leading other human beings, uh, and I think this includes parents, there's a set of books by a, a company called the Arbinger Institute. And one of them is called Leadership and Self-Deception. Another one is called the Anatomy of Peace, it's my favorite of the three, and the third one's called The Outward Mindset. Uh, all three of them basically uh, are the same. Uh, they're talking about the same general concept three different ways. I prefer The Anatomy of Peace. If you're gonna read one of those three books the most, especially to anybody that's leading. Um, as far as other books, I think in every category, there are so many good ones. My hot picks right now for marketing is Building Your Story Brand, um, it's a really great book uh, about really giving you just a template for marketing for just about any business. And it's Fisher Price, you know, um, marketing. And it works really well. Of course, I'm always going to recommend Positioning by um, you know, Jack Trout and Al Rice. It's the cornerstone of any great marketing uh, campaign. And then Traction uh, EOS by Gino Wickman, I think, is the operational um, handbook for, for small business right now. And so I think that's kind of a small arsenal for a starting or budding entrepreneur. But if you didn't hear any of the others, go read Leadership and Self-Deception and uh, The Anatomy of Peace. All right. Did you write those down, James? I'm yeah. hoping we recorded them. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, those those uh, were life-changing for me. Um, and uh, all of my senior leaders read them. 
I'm trying to think one you recommended to me in the last few months was, I don't even remember the name. Um, it's by the uh, hostage negotiator. Don't split uh, the difference or never split the difference. That's oh, a great yeah. book. Uh, salespeople, negotiators, um, really anybody should read that. If you're going to buy a car, it's probably a great book to read. Um, and it was, well, it was fun to read. So few like businessy personal development books are, are fun. That one starts off with like, hey, if I got, you know, kidnapped your spouse and was demanding a million dollars, what would you do? And I'm like, I don't know. This sounds fun. Uh, so it was, it was a good read. But yeah, that's a good one. There's so many great books out there. I'd say for every bad book I read, there's five good ones. Of course, only one out of 10 or 20 is that like real, just amazing, um, you know, read. But most books, I think, that I, at least that I consume are good. Okay. Well. Yeah, let's get up. We're eventually going to get down to this, so let's get it out of the way. All right. What's up? You're an educator. I think the education system is flawed tremendously. And I believe four-year college institutions are going to be turned upside down. So I'd like to know how you would reform education if you had a magic wand, your current feelings on education, and your advice to people who are struggling through COVID, maybe they lost their job or their hours have been deducted or their industry is failing. I know it's a oh, lot. Yeah, so there's you gotta a go lot. yeah. There's a lot to unpack there. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm in education. Um, it's so surreal to say that because I never thought that I would be like, you know, we've talked about, I came up as a, an IT guy and a software developer. Um, and the fact that I'm even in education is so weird to me. It's um, not a place that I thought I'd be. When we started Code Up, we essentially started it because myself and two other entrepreneurs were complaining that we were hiring software developers from the local colleges and they couldn't pass our entry level web development right so they can tell us about all these algorithmic complexities and they can graph like you know how long it takes to to you know store an object or whatever but when we ask them how to turn the button blue they can't tell me and I'm like, I just need you to turn the button blue. Um, so I'm complaining to a couple of other entrepreneurs. We're all talking about it. And one of us, Michael, looks up and he's like, well, we're never going to get college to change what they're teaching, right? The professor is going to teach the book they wrote 12 years ago and sell as many copies as they can. So they're getting taught archaic stuff that doesn't matter. Um, why don't we just start one of these things like these boot camps that are popping up around the country? And um, we'll just teach people here. And so the first thing we actually did was call the boot camp up the road in Austin. And we were like, hey, would you guys just come open in San Antonio? That'd be kind of cool. Mm -hmm. And they're like, no. I'm like, well, we might open one if you know we can't get somebody to come here. And they were like, well, come on up to our campus. We'll show you everything. Just promise you don't open one here. Right. Uh, they were really welcoming and like, just open the door and show us everything. Here's what you should do. Here's what you don't do. Um, so we opened this thing in a, in a co-working place in San Antonio we got 20-something, 28, 30 people to sign up, and we wrote the curriculum. We just came out and taught it every day inside this co-working spot, and it was dirt cheap at the time. Uh, no guarantees, no anything. 
Um, and even then, if you would have told me you're going to be an educator, I'm like, no, this is a side gig. Like, we're doing this so that we can test the hypothesis. Can we train people how to write software in a, a short amount of time? Because I don't have a degree in this. Nobody at my company has degrees in this. Everybody I know that's good at it taught themselves. It's kind of like Van Halen didn't go get a PhD in music theory, right? Like, um, just spent a lot of time with his fingers on a guitar. Uh, people that spend a lot of time with their fingers on keyboards writing code eventually get pretty good at it. Right. And anyway, um, so the fact that this has grown into a multi-campus, multi-curriculum school with, you know, 5,000, you know, fastest growing company awards and stuff, it's mind boggling to me. So you're right. I'm an educator. And I also though agree that there's a lot of problems with education. If I didn't, I wouldn't be here because we started this not to go disrupt education. We started this to hire software developers in our other companies. Right. Um, you know, of course, education was flawed. That's why we had to do it. And to me, that's one of the biggest, um, um, uh, uh, it, it it's the thing that makes me scratch my head the most about America uh, when I think about education is we actually have some of the best education in the world. We're really, really good at it. People come here from all over the world to go to American schools. And at the same time, we are horrible consumers of education. Um, so we have great, at least a handful of great providers we have some of the, the world's leading information and we're horrible consumers and producers of education to our population. Um, at CODEP, my, my company, um, our average student is uh, in their late 20s, early 30s, between 28 and 32 years old. Um, they've already gone out and either gotten a degree or gone into the military or become a barista or whatever, and they've worked for a decade. Um, and now their career transition and I look at that 30 or 40% of them that have degrees and think you're strapped with a lot of, of debt into uh, education that you're ending up not going to get a good ROI on. You're not going to get a good return on that. Now you're paying to be re-educated in a different, uh, more radical way. And you're going to go out and hopefully make a lot of money and you know it's going to be a great ROI for it. And that's where I think the big gap that we, we should be thinking about is Instead of thinking about this, this fallacy that we're telling kids you need to go get a degree, I think that we need to be telling kids you need to get the skills necessary to do the thing that you want to do. And sometimes that means getting a degree. And if you're going to go get one, get the best one you can. If your dream is to be a lawyer, go to the best law school you can get into. Put the best effort you can into that law school but also, how do you tell an 18-year-old, how do you give them the financial literacy to understand that commitment that that law degree is going to cost 200 grand or more? And it's going to, you know, you're going to turn drinking age with enough debt that you could have bought a, a beautiful home that it's twice the, triple the average medium income in your, in your city. So anyway, uh, going down a different path there. Uh, so I agree, education is totally flawed. And I think your third uh, part of that question, if I remember right, before we get to the COVID part was, what would I do to fix it? If I could wave a magic wand, what would I do to fix it? K through eight Man, that's, specifically. Huh? K through eight specifically. Like, yeah, you know. K through eight. Um, you know, that's a tough one. And the answers that I might have had a year ago are even different now because 
that's changed so much. But I think that step one to making that better is we have to eliminate the digital divide. Mm -hmm. Education now, when I was a kid, knowledge was held in Encyclopedia Britannicus at people's homes that could afford Encyclopedia Britannicus and nobody read the Encyclopedia Britannicus or they were held in libraries. And the high school library was cool, but if you went to the college library, it was cooler. And if you went to a really nice college library, it was even cooler. Now information is held on, on you know, electronics, on silicone, on, on the internet. And it's a vast amount of information compared to what those libraries held. And it's democratized to the point of people that have access to that. Mm-hmm. And there's still way too many households with K through eight children in them that do not have access to the internet. And I don't know how we solve that problem. I've heard solutions ranging from turn it into a utility to you know, have cities and municipalities create uh, their own mesh networks. And I don't know which, I, I'm not gonna be an advocate for one solution over the other. Maybe I'm an advocate for try them all, I don't know. Mm-hmm. but. If we had that that large percentage of our population without clean drinking water or electricity, there are things that we would do about it. And I think that if we're not getting those uh, access to the internet to those K through eight children, then we're um, we're preventing a large portion of our population from receiving the education that they should, whether they're going to a substandard school or not. That's step one. Now, of course, that doesn't fix it. Right, just bringing the information, putting Encyclopedia Britannica in everybody's house doesn't make education better. But no access to it makes it worse. And now that we're in COVID, or uh, I think people can have a lot more empathy for the subset of children that don't get to go to school like everyday children get to and have the experience that maybe uh, we got to experience or other people we knew got to experience. And maybe COVID's given us a huge opportunity to get better at distance education which is where we start to see efficiencies of scale. Um, we're still teaching folks like we were a uh, hundred years ago, right? It's still kind of the same mentality of we build a big building and we bring people here. And um, there's a lot of other things that we've built around that, that have maybe taken our eye off of the real purpose of school, which is to prepare students for their adulthood, not to prepare them necessarily for college that's going to prepare them for not necessarily their adulthood or career. Um, and so anyway, step one, close the digital divide. Step two, really look at how we can get efficiencies of scale into our education system instead of having all these separate fiefdoms running around fighting over who can get the best state standardized test score. Um, so, and I think the end of that was, what would my advice be to people who are displaced uh, due to COVID, and when I say displaced, that might not be the best word, but uh, have lost jobs or um, otherwise hitting financial hardships or career changes due to to COVID. Man, that's such a tough one. Um, I'm very fortunate in my household. It's uh, myself, my adult daughter was supposed to move to Beijing in um, February or March of this year. Uh, for a two-year job, just got her two-year work permit and didn't get to go, obviously, because uh, Americans aren't moving to China right now for work, and China's not, I think, accepting Americans uh, as they should. Um, 
you know, as it should be. Um, and so she's uh, unemployed. My wife's a, a fairly successful wedding photographer in South Texas. Weddings aren't happening. Gatherings aren't happening in, in mass. So she's unemployed. Uh, my sister has been furloughed for the last five months. And so in my immediate household, I can feel it. Of course, all of us feel it in our friends and families and in our own lives. And it's tremendous. All we can do, I think, looking back on to the 1917-1918 time frame, certainly can probably yield a lot of data for other disciplines. Um, But for business, I think that's really hard to look at because the world has changed so dramatically since then. So all we can really look at is like 2008, 2001. Um, to say who survived. Uh, I'm a big believer that the robots are coming to take our jobs. And so right now, if you're doing a job that could be done by a robot in the next 10 years, that's probably a good sign that now's uh, the the second best time to retrain into a new job. Uh, A year or two ago was probably the best time, but now's the second best time. So go do it because the third best time won't be nearly as good. Uh, so step one, if your job can be done by a robot, um, start start looking to retrain because it will be done by a robot. Um, money is made in services more than it is in products so that if you can find a, a skill that transfers better into a service-based industry, then you're gonna do good. So writing software, being an engineer, being a lawyer, being any number of trades, that robots can't do but the market needs healthcare is always going to be huge always if you have any desire to be in healthcare now's a great time to retrain into that field uh, and there's a lot of jobs and opportunities that you can get there quickly um, relatively quickly um, i would say really investigate people that are in jobs that you would like to be in and in careers that you would like to be in mm-hmm. and i would interview them and ask them how they got there because the beliefs that one has about how one gets into a career and the reality of how one gets into a career are oftentimes much different. Uh, look at software development. The belief is you have a computer science degree. The reality is, oh man, I've worked with hundreds of developers. I've worked with maybe a dozen people with computer science degrees. Right. Um, they're, they're the vast minority of the software development community. So, you know, explore the, the real opportunities there. And then I think my last thing is, would be just go apply. Um, and people tell me all the time, I can't apply for that job. It says five years experience and this and that. And my answer is if they knew that person, they wouldn't have paid $200 to put that job listing out there. So you're right. You might not be their ideal candidate. You might not have five years experience in a PhD and whatever. Uh, it's free to apply mm-hmm. and no doesn't cost you anything, but who knows? you might be the best of the bad applicants they get. And um, getting the seat at the table is the first step. The rest, then you figure out how to do the job. That's good. I am absolutely impressed by the ability to hit every point on a way too multifaceted question. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I had to get it out in one shot before I forget the other points of the question, you know? Yes. Yeah, uh, that was fun. So let's go. So I, I want to talk about code up a little bit. Oh, okay. You didn't start off. It didn't start off as something to where you go, Hey, come do this. You don't get a job. You have your money back. What, what got you to like, what was the thinking that got to that point of, Hey, this is where we need to be or what, and maybe what is it that 
you saw in your business and people be in place that you said, this is so such a safe bet for us that it's worth it? Yeah. So when, you know, myself and my two co-founders started Code Up, and as you pointed out earlier, part of the secret sauce is that co-founder relationship. Um, very fortunate that all three of us had other ventures that were making money. I mean, that's, that's how we made a living. And so Code Up wasn't a how do we make money venture. It was really a how do we build ourselves some developers venture and um, a side project. And so when it started growing a little bit and people were coming back and saying, hey, when's the next class? Or, hey, can I hire more of your graduates or whatever? Um, we kind of sat down and said, if we're going to put effort into this, what do we want it to look like? And we built a straw man. And we said, what does Code Up look like in five years and 10 years? And we kind of built this straw man of uh, what we wanted to do. And at first we started asking, well, you know, a lot of these boot camps are in like 20 or 30 cities. How would we get there? And so luckily one of the co-founders looked up and said, who wants to go spend the next five years in airplanes setting up 30 campuses? And none of us raised our heads. They were like, okay, then how about we don't try to be the biggest boot camp in the country? So if we don't want to be the most campuses, what do we want to be? And Michael said, you know, wouldn't it be cool if we were like the Harvard of this industry? What if we just decided we want to be the best and we don't want to be the biggest we don't want to have the most campuses. We don't want to have the most revenue or students or whatever. We just want to have the best outcomes. What would that look like? And could we do it? And the more we built the straw man, the more we liked that kind of origin point of saying, how do you just become the best? And a couple of the things that we did very early on was we said, in 20 years of being in IT, I had never, ever written code with a female. It's a male-dominated field, incredibly male-dominated field. So from the very first cohort, we gave uh, women in tech scholarships. So we gave discounted tuition rates to females trying to see could we, could we, is one of the ways we could be the best was to help level the playing field in gender diversity and technology. And while we're not going to change the world in San Antonio, Texas, we can change the world of a handful of people and a handful of companies. And so we did that. And... Um, one of the things we discussed was what should college do to better align or what should education do to better align their value proposition and outcomes um, with the reality of what they do. And somebody had said, well, what if we just gave every, what if they gave you back your money if it failed? Like there's all these places that are like your money back if our product fails. Like what if education actually did that? I think it was one of those kind of you know, whatever, hyperbolic moments, right? Where we're all just kind of straw-banded and spitballing. And it was like, wait, wait a minute, we could do that. So we gave 50% tuition back from the beginning. Um, and uh, we just thought, let's, 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 what, what's the worst that can happen? I mean, we're, you know, we don't get jobs and we go bankrupt. Uh, we're okay with that. Like, this is, like, let's see if we can do it. And so since then, CodeUp's all, it's kind of become our uh, sandbox to be able to say, how do we continue to answer that question? How are we the best? And the best, again, isn't the biggest or the strongest or the most profitable. It's who has the best outcomes. And again, last year, 99.2% of our graduates were employed in field. Uh, so when did we go to 100%? When we crossed 95% placement. Uh, the board was sitting together and we're like, why don't we just go to 100%? Um, what's stopping us? And the, the irony of that is when we went to 100% tuition refund, 
we got into a fairly uh, long, arduous battle with our state regulators who um, prevented us from increasing from a 50% to 100% refund. And for a short time actually made us stop offering a refund, um, which is a kind of a side story. But now we, uh, we have it in writing in our contract with all of our students. And we believe that, you know, every school should do that. So that's how we got there. Um, since then, we've done a lot of other crazy things um, that are at least, you know, from the outside, they probably look crazy, but we want the best outcomes that we can get. So um, one of the things we don't broadcast is we have a very low acceptance rate, mm. um, sub 30% acceptance rate. And for a, a small school, and most of my competitors are selling for 25 to $150 million and exits to PE firms and opening up in every city you can imagine in the world, um, it's tempting. And we just try to stay focused on um, having the best outcomes because we think the long play is uh, the better play for everybody. You mean applicants? Is that what you mean by acceptance rate? Uh, pardon me? Do you mean applicants when you talk about acceptance rate? Yeah. Well, yes. So the number of applicants that, that, you know, come to code up and apply mm -hmm. less than 30% of them make it to the accepted phase yeah. um, where they're then able to get financing and enroll into our, our program. Now, of course, there's always a subset that don't get financing or choose not to, uh, you know, continue all the way into the enrollment pipeline. But we have a pretty stringent process to get in. It's not just like, hey, I have money and I want to be a software developer. Mm -hmm. um, I, it's hard to maintain 90-something percent placement rates when, you know, money is the only um, uh, qualifying factor into bringing somebody into your school. We want to make sure that we're a good fit. It's not that I don't believe everybody can't be a developer. I do believe that nearly everybody can become a developer. That doesn't mean that everybody should come to CODAP. Um, we work for a certain type of person and it's with a certain desire and, um, and it also needs to be a responsible move for you. So we give uh, behavioral interviews, we give technical screenings, we uh, give pre-work that we give students to have them do. And each of those gates tells us another, um, it's another opportunity for us to determine whether or not we think they're gonna have a high success rate. Because if you do come into the program, we want you to have a high success rate. We want you to come out and graduate. We want you to make it all the way through the finish line. And then we want you to go get a job. We want you to, to finish the promise of getting employed and in the field. Um, and most of our growth is around referrals. So on both sides of the customer pipeline, people have been to refer their friends and family and colleagues and say, I went to code up the return on my investment was huge, but they also refer us to employer partners. Like, Oh, you should hire from code up. Um, the, the candidates we get there are as good, if not better than the local colleges. And, um, you know, so that's, that's the motivation. That's fantastic. I mean, that's, I mean, if you're going to be offering a hundred percent, uh, return, on your your students uh, finishing and getting a job, then you 100% need to be stringent about who you're gonna be inputting into your school. Well, yeah, I think, thank you, and but I agree. I think it also has three other factors. It attracts the best candidates, mm -hmm. right? Because candidates then say, I want to go to the school that's going to put skin in the game with me, and they must be good if they're willing to do this, right? It attracts the best staff. 
right? People want to work at that kind of company. In the last uh, four years, we've three times we've been ranked in the top 10 best places to work in San Antonio. Um, I think that's because part of it is of our, uh, our outcomes rate. We attract people that want to work there, that want to be a part of that process in people's lives. Um, and so I think that that's, um, you know, a big deal that comes from that. And I think we attract those employer partners because when you're out hiring and you're recruiting from college campuses and you see that CODAP gives their students 100% of their money back if they don't get a job, you're like, wait a minute, I think I want to go interview those candidates too. That seems like a, an attractive offer. And so we actually have some major employers that will put out job recs that will say four-year degree in computer science or certificate <laughs> of completion from CODAP. Yeah. It won't say from a coding boot camp. It will say from CODAP. And we're talking like Fortune 500 employers here, not like, you know, good old boy friends in the, in the local business community. It took us years to knock on that door. Right. And how did we get in? Finally, somebody got a job there and people went, wait a minute, you're good at what you do. What's your degree in? Oh, I got a cert from Coda. What? Uh, let me go hire five more of you. So right. uh, that's, uh, but no, it's, uh, I wish more education would do that. Uh, I think they should. Um, and I think it would make them more picky about who they let in. Yeah, that's a, it's a, that's a slippery slope because we're talking about access and, you know, basically the Harvard of coding. So, well, we aspire to be maybe. Right, but um, I'm just saying like, I mean, I, I agree, but that's a slippery slope to go now because if more, edu I guess, if four-year universities were like that, then... I guess it'd just be a lot of people just, I don't know. It would seem like there'd be a lot of people just out there or parents need to be, parents would be like, you need to go get a job because you can't get into right. University of Texas, well, I guess. I think there's a couple of things though that have to happen there. And I agree with you. Uh, and at face value, what I just said, I certainly can see um, that um, perspective. Um, unlike Harvard, I think that we're a lot more affordable. We accept the GI Bill. Um, we okay. have a lot of grant partners. Um, we pride ourselves on the diversity and inclusivity of our cohorts. Mm -hmm. um, so but maybe that's a little different thing when, you know, we want those outcomes. I do think that the cost of education, especially for college, has become absurd on, in so many cases. Great. But when I talk about more of being more picky, maybe a better way to say that is most of the, of the schools that I can see from where I sit, I don't study colleges, but from where I sit, the college freshman class is much larger than the graduating class oh, yeah. of almost every college I see by a large number, a significant amount. However, all of those people that came in that didn't go out are paying student loans. And here I am at 44 years old. I'm one of them uh, that's still paying student loans, uh, stands a degree. And that is, to me, a bigger theft than being too picky on the front end, is saying, I'll let anybody come in and get a mortgage that doesn't have the financial literacy to understand what they're signing up for. And a promise that the golden ticket of the American dream comes at the ends of four years of college. And... You get to pick what you want to be when you grow up and all it's going to cost you is tens or hundreds of thousands of dollars. I would much rather schools get a little more picky and say, you know what, Jason, 
I don't think that this is where you need to be right now. And in fact, if you are, come prove it to me by doing this pre-work. Come do it by you know proving by doing these exercises and showing me that you really want to be here. But really, maybe you should explore another path, right? Like maybe there's another spot for you. Uh, you're right, that pendulum can swing to the other way where access then becomes too difficult. But I think in correct. that marketplace where we begin to think about outcomes, where we judge schools based on number of jobs people get and what those starting salaries are mm. versus how many degrees were granted and how much grant money was brought in the back door, uh, how many trophies their football team won, um, then we begin to see a good return on investment. And I think competition then can step in. And instead of it being, okay, it's it's become this inclusive club again of the 1920s, I think instead what you see is better competition amongst people like me, career schools, where there's not enough competition. Mm-hmm. What? There's programmers. You can become a nurse. You can become a cosmetologist. You can become a, you know, a real estate agent. All of these are honorable professions. All, all these career schools are out here because society needs them. You can become a plumber, an HVAC technician. These are people you want to see somebody making some money. Um, plumbers, honorable profession, makes a ton of cash. Uh, how many high school counselors are looking at folks saying, have you thought about going and getting, being a plumber? Mm-hmm. No, they're saying, go get a degree in fluid dynamics. Why? We don't need more people with, with degrees in fluid dynamics. I'm sure we need some NASA folks. Yes, I know. But um what we really need is people that know how to make the stuff in my pipes go where it's supposed to go. And I will pay handsomely, uh, not happily, but handsomely for that skill. Um, and so I'd rather see education go that route and say, Jason, instead of coming here and getting halfway through a degree that we think you're not going to finish based on our interests, uh, you know, statistics of what we know about you, how about you go be a plumber for a while? And make some fat cash, but um, anyway, I, I got off track and ranted a bit there. You know, you know what they say about the American sleep to believe it. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, uh, I can see that. Um, I, I don't know. I think uh, I've lived the Jason dream now, so that's just a, 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 maybe a very you know, narcissistic. I mean, I don't mean to get on too much of a tangent, but do you know much about the American dream, like how it started? Uh, I, I don't, um, James, do you know, I do know that we're full of, um, misconceptions about our past. Jason, uh, or excuse me, Haven, I don't know where it started. Okay. So the American dream was basically for a certain segment of society. White. Uh, Go ahead. Yes. Not some of our non-melanated <laughs> patrons of this uh, of this wonderful country that we live in so um so after world war ii you know obviously you know that our greatest time of prosperity was in the 50s right supposed war dream okay so what happened was all these soldiers came back right and at the time they had all these all these factories that were making um you know artillery and all that stuff for the war they you know now they're building cars and they're building you know, refrigerators and all this stuff, right? So obviously, you know, the Northeast and Michigan and, you know, they have all these factories now, right? So when they come back from the war, you know, I forgot the name of the guy, but he had, it's this very popular place in Long Island, right? 
and he he was building these. That's just where the model communities came from. Okay. Now, what do you think the down payment was for a house in these communities when the soldiers came back? No idea. I'm going to go $500. Zero. Yeah, 500 to 1000 It was zero. Zero dollars. Zero. Right? So when you come back, this certain non-melanated segment gets these houses, right? So they say, okay, as long as you, you come back and you got to work, you know, you have a job or whatever at this factory, right? So now they have all these model homes ready to go. And um, the houses were twice what you would make, right? So let's say you made uh, $10,000 at the factory. The house is worth 20000 right? So you have a Z. You have, so a big thing is not you'll notice about these communities that they were all white. So when you came back from the war, you got 0% loans on these houses. You get a job at the factory. Now, why do you think they gave 0% on these houses? I'm going to go with, it's going to keep you tied to the factory. That's exactly right. That's the reason. Yeah. So they, so they say, okay, well, we're going to give you this house, right? So you're going to have a family. You got a plot of land. So this is now the American dream house, car, two kids, dog, and a white picket fence. And guess what the white picket fence did? Kept everybody else out. It didn't keep everybody else out, but that's another, that's another industry. Everybody wanted a white picket fence and it funded. Ah. Yeah. So that <laughs> it's, you know, Just it's kept people employed building that, things. That's exactly right. So I'm telling you the fencing, you know, right around the fifties, like nobody really has fences anymore. They were gated communities. Yeah. Or but yeah, so that's where, that's where it came from. You know, that's why a certain segment of society, you know, if people say, you know, my, this, yeah. this house has been passed down from my grandma and grandfather, blah, 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 blah. Well, a certain segment of society, Never had that opportunity. It also fought in the war. Sure. No, that's interesting. I believe that. Um, it's it's, uh, it's super interesting. And, you know, there's, there's fallacies that have been born out of that that I think we still have today, one of which is not only do we tell young people go, go heavily in debt to go get education into a field you're not sure that you know you're going into, um, at schools that you don't really understand the financing for. And as soon as you get out, and you've done these four years and you get the piece of paper and you go out and get that first job, go buy a house because being in debt to your college for the next 30 years, isn't enough. You should go buy a house because the American dreams built on equity. And if you just buy a house and you have a college degree, your life is going to be great. And you know, it probably goes back a lot to those roots of, well, my grandfather came back from the war. They bought a house, and look, they ended up having what was basically wealth. It's a totally and a different situation. So if it worked for them, and all they said was if they would have had a degree, they would have even done better, right? Then, then the key must be if I just get a degree and then go buy a house, yeah, I'm going to be a half a million dollars in debt at 22 years old, but um, that's cool. I'll be able to figure it out just like my grandparents did. And, you know, for a very small percentage of folks, that might work out, right? But um, 
The rest of us walk around paying financial aid, typically to a degree that we either didn't get or aren't using. And uh, that to me, then you end up buying a house young, a lot of people do, and end up a lot in the situation that you're talking about, where you become a slave to a mortgage and to a car payment and um, a career that Monday morning is not a thing that you're excited about going to. Well, and I'll, and I'll even add to that. It's funny you use that word slave because I'm a firm believer that in a quote-unquote free society that's a capitalist society or run on money, debt, you know, freedom is financial freedom. Debt is enslavement or indentured. And um, so that's exactly everything you're saying is that it ties people down and I don't know if I'm going to be sounding like a conspiracy theorist here or not, but I felt a long time ago when I'm so busy and I'm, I'm at this point in my life with kids and work and all this, I don't have time to go and dispute what my government's doing or dispute what big business is doing or do that. I've got time to deal with my family. And so all the big things can kind of do what they want because even if I go, that's wrong, I don't have the hours of my day to go commit to helping whatever right that wrong. Anyway, that's my little tangent. No, listen, man, I agree. And, and, and James Altucher said, you know, I don't know if you guys, he has a wonderful book. You should check it out. Just called Choose Yourself. I don't know if you're familiar with James, but he's, he's an amazing author and um, social media guy. But he's just, he was just breaking down as far as the house is concerned. He's like, so let me get this right. So you're in an apartment. The down payment for a house is 20K. The house costs 200,000. So you're in an apartment and you got 20K. So then you go put the 20,000 down on a house. Now you got a house, but you're 200K in debt. But you still got a place to live. What sense does that make? Yeah. Um, well, and I, I have a friend that's a financial advisor, and he only advises people with large portfolios. Well, they have to have a, a pretty large liquid amount before he'll uh, do business with them. And he has a phrase that I think is great. He said that he likes to correct people when they say buying their house is an investment. And he says, no, 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 it's not. Mm-hmm. because an investment you buy low and sell high. Right. So as your financial advisor, if I show up on your door on a Tuesday at 3 p.m. and knock on the door and say, Jason, right now is the best time to sell your house. Sell it right now. Pack your stuff and start leaving. Mm-hmm. Are you going to? And if the answer is no, it's not an investment, Yeah. right? It's an asset. And yeah, it's an asset that should uh, appreciate. Hopefully it does. It should at least hold its value. But you, you can't liquidate it quickly for its maximum amount. And you're probably not going to buy and sell it around the cycle of its uh, worth. Um, but, you know, the two things that we don't teach people young enough, and unfortunately, too many of our fellow Americans and, and earthlings, for that matter, are going to go through their entire life without learning one or either of these. And probably what I think are the two most important things that people need to learn young. Uh, is financial literacy, at least a, at least a, a certain level of it. Um, I didn't understand and still will never will understand enough about how money works, but uh, the concept that you borrowed money for future versions of you to pay back 
was something that I just believed for so long. And now I understand more that debt is a vehicle for me to share risk with a, a financial institution. It's not that I don't have the ability to, to whatever do the thing, but uh, debt should be something that I'm sharing risk with somebody you know i'm taking that that on a car where they could repossess it and get their money back uh and i'm sharing that risk with them but it it shouldn't be that oh future me is going to make more and we'll be able to afford to pay for that car so current me should go ahead and buy it and that's kind of what a house is right Mm -hmm. you're saying i could barely make the payment but that's okay future me is going to have no trouble making that because that dude's i mean he's got his shit together right um and so even if your financial literacy is only that far, that's fine. But we should at least understand how interest basically works, how compound interest works, um, you know, how good money management uh, looks like, what savings looks like. Uh, these are not things that most people learn, and I didn't learn until too late in life. Well, not too late, but um, I wish I would have learned them earlier. The second and probably bigger gap that we have, and we're seeing it become a bigger threat uh, to society every single day as data literacy. People that aren't in the kind of fields that I am, I don't think realize the value of data and the amount of data that they are freely giving the rest of the world that we are mining from you. And 2020 will go down with the unique distinction as the year in history where data became the most valuable resource on the planet. The nation's data is now worth more than the nation's oil. It's unbelievable. And the amount of data that we all give up freely um, and, uh, and don't understand the repercussions of the deals that we're making is going to cost us greatly and also not understanding how that data is being utilized to customize and micro-target experiences for each of us that we have to build resilience to and learn to question. And without that data literacy, it's easy to take bad information uh, at point blank. And this idea of deep fakes and fake news and uh, all of this, it's not going to be a flash-in-the-pan phenomenon. We're seeing the beginning of what becomes the democratization of psychological operations. And unless we understand how that data is collected and used, then we're setting ourselves up to be victims uh, to a lot of really crazy uh, sci-fi stuff. So I have a question to follow up with that. Yeah. So Jason, how do we take ownership of our data and then monetize it? Man, uh, if you could figure that out, um billion dollar question yeah i mean um mark zuckerberg did that right at scale mm -hmm. um you know that's a it's a tough question because first we have to care about owning it how we do it's easy there's a ton of federated social media platforms out there there's uh encryption modules there's communication platforms and they've been around for years or decades um geeks have encrypted and, and understood protecting data for a very long time uh consumers don't care it's not that we can't do it it's that nobody wants to and come on i'm guilty of it just like everybody else i google things all the time i buy crap on amazon i um 
but at least I feel like a lot of those decisions I'm making eyes wide open. I know what decisions that I'm making and I understand the trade-off that when I'm not paying for something that I'm not the customer, I'm the product. I'm not the customer of Facebook. I'm not the customer of Twitter. I'm their product. I'm what they sell. Mm -hmm. And understanding that means I interact with those brands uh, and services differently than I think my, you know, friends and family and, and, and peers that don't have that same level of understanding and um, not having that data literacy really, I think, handicaps so many people from being able to make uh, the kinds of decisions that I'm sure that they their value systems would want them to make and their, their beliefs would want them to make, but they don't understand that we're giving away potentially millions of dollars worth of information about ourselves. And then also setting ourselves up to be micro-targeted um, where our ability to question our belief systems becomes limited because our data sources are only going to feed us information that it knows we're going to respond well to that keeps us there so we look at more ads so that we read more articles so uh and if it's not challenging our worldview but rather reinforcing it then well it keeps me there longer right this becomes a data science play it's not like oh these are manipulative people and you're talking about this conspiracy where they're trying to control our minds no they don't care what you're reading they care how long they can keep you there reading it they don't care if it's true or left or right or no, no, no. The they, the ones making the money behind the scenes, it's simply an algorithmic question that says, how long can I keep this viewer here and how many products can I get them to click on? And we're feeding that beast and not understanding how to or why we should spend the extra 10 minutes to go into Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and turn off all of the targeted marketing um you know, opt out you can do it just go opt out of all of it and all of a sudden you're going to start seeing viewpoints of people that did, may disagree with you and you're like wait a minute uh, of course you're also going to get targeted for ads that have nothing to do with you all of a sudden but that's kind of cool too yeah and i think anybody can really see it just by looking at what youtube recommendations you get you always oh, get yeah. things similar to what you YouTube. I can, no matter what I YouTube, I can start YouTubing music stuff and all my recommendations are going to be musicians. If I go do comedy, they'll all be comedy. If I do self-help, I mean, it all continues down the line. It doesn't still give me a wide range of options. We are getting so incredibly good at predicting what human beings will like. It is unbelievable. It's not that hard. Um, they're, they're, well, they're still like they're still it, like quick, shiny things. Well, yes, but to the <laughs> level now that we have gotten to that women like. Uh, I, I'm I'm pretty picky about movies. I, I have a very um, strange, I think, taste for movies, and that movies that a lot of people love, I just can't stand. And I I don't know. It's Netflix is the only thing I've ever met that can predict movies that I'm going to really enjoy. Like it's gotten to the point where Netflix can put something on there and I can hit play and it's going to be awesome. Well, you're so but niche I put though. the time into liking and disliking and rating hundreds of movies in Netflix. I've spent the time saying, yes, that was three stars. That was two stars. That was five stars for years. 
And that's what data is great at. Given enough historical data, mm-hmm. I can become very good at predicting future events that you might like. So if it's your likes on Facebook or Twitter or, or your rankings on, on, on Netflix, when an algorithm is created and it's training itself in a neural network, basically it guesses a, a, a way that it can predict what you like next. And then it looks at all your historical data and said, how close was my guess to what they actually liked next? And okay, now I'm gonna change my algorithm just a little, I'm gonna ask that question again until I can find the version of myself that predicts it with the highest likelihood. And then I'm gonna guess really the next five movies maybe for Jason to watch. And then based on which one of those five he actually picks, that's the next version of my algorithm I'm gonna use. And they're like these viruses that are, they're alive. People think about like these predictive algorithms, like, oh, they wrote this thing that goes on a chalkboard. No, they're living basically creatures that based on the more data they have, the better they can predict. So given 10 years of your social media platform, likes, dislikes, shares, comments, I can predict with a very high likelihood messages that might make you lean towards one political candidate or another things that might make you be more interested in attending an event and um, what news you're more likely to click on, what kind of meme you're most likely to share. And that data might seem very uh, harmless at first glance, but when looked at in scale, it, it is actually very incredibly powerful. Yeah. You know, I was listening to, I guess the thing was David Cho. He's an artist. Uh, he's, the, I'm in, I'm Daniel Cho and he's the artist that um, when Facebook opened, he did a lot of art at Facebook and they asked him, do you want 60,000 or shares? I think that's his name. Yeah. So he said, I'll take the shares right now. He's he worth like $200 million. Yeah. So it was a good call. What was interesting was he was saying, and I often question myself about this stuff. He said he's been all over the world and he went to, Uganda, right? So he spent a week in Uganda with this tribe, right? And he says, all right, so here's what you do. We wake up. He's like, you know, their biggest thing to have fun is fart. Okay. That's what they do to, you know, that's the, that's the comedy there, right? So they get up in the morning, right? And now the goal is to feed ourselves, right? So they go chasing after baboons or whatever, you know, wildlife is out there to feed themselves, right? And they spend all day, 13 hours, like chasing, you know, animals, you know, to eat, whatever, right? And he's exhausted. He's like, we're out here in the bush. It's whatever, 90 some degrees. And they're not even sweating, right? They're all ripped, you know, whatever. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're, they're, they're wondering about this guy. Like, you know, what's going on with you? Why are you tired? You know, just, you know. And, you know, they get to the end of the day, they're all eating around the campfire or whatever. And he's like, you know, what do you guys know about America? And he's like, oh, that's the place where people kill themselves. So, you know, we think we're so technologically advanced. We have all this wonder, you know, running water. We have AC, AC, right? But to what end? For what? Why? Is it really better? 
You know, it's all a matter of perspective. Absolutely. So, so that's that. No. That's my blind spot. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Um, absolutely true. Uh, there's a lot of good things that comes with the first world economy, for sure. But there's certainly a lot of other challenges that we have that other people didn't. And while I've never been in Uganda uh, and seen it in that extreme of a nature, a real eye-opener for me was the first time I went to Medellin in Colombia. Um you know, all I knew of it was from Narcos, right? Yeah. That's where, where Pablo Escobar is from. And at one point in my childhood, it was the most dangerous city on earth, or at least some magazine claimed it was. There was probably some that were worse. But, um, you know, going there, I had some even anxiety, even 30 years later, like I'm going to this place that's, in, you know, it's scary, right? I get there. And man, the most friendly human beings I have ever encountered in the world are in Medellin, Colombia, just so incredibly friendly and happy and poor, poor. I mean, beyond belief, the number of homeless folks that I saw was unbelievable. People that were middle class um, in their in their economy, we would consider lower poverty line. Um, some of the homes that I got to go into had dirt floors, and there was no, you know, air conditioning. Um, but you didn't need it because it's 75 degrees year round. You're in the valley of gorgeous mountains. Mm -hmm. uh, the homeless people aren't starving because there's so much fruit that grows. They have so many varieties of fruit. We'd ask some people, what kind of fruit is that? And they're like, we don't know. We call it the orange one. Right. Um, because the 30 or 40 different varieties that are growing everywhere. So, you know, people are eating them. Uh, they're selling them to tourists, literally picking them off trees, cutting them up, putting them in a plastic cup and selling them to tourists so you could eat it out of a plastic cup, right? Um, and I'd ask people, would you ever want to come to America? And they all told me, no. Why would I want to do that? I live in a paradise. Why would I want to go there? In fact, why don't you go tell people in America you were safe here? Will you just do that for us? Go tell people in America you were safe in Medellin, that it wasn't what you saw on Netflix. Um, and while it doesn't correlate, you know, with the, the extreme poverty that you're talking about in Uganda and that experience, um, it still blew my mind that people that lived where, it, from my perspective, so far below what I would consider a standard of living, they were so incredibly happy and joyful and not content. I, I listened to your last podcast where you talked about you're the difference between those two. I would call this joy that a lot of the people there I interacted with had true, natural, daily happiness. And being able to introduce an American to their version of chicharrones or take me out to play Tejo and have a Colombian beer, like that was, you could tell it brought them true joy um, to, to share their culture and that experience with me. Um, but they didn't have a, a desire to come to America. They wanted to work for an American company. They liked making American dollars but they did not want to leave Colombia. One of the things in tech in Colombia is being employed by an American tech company is, I mean, that's, it's an honor. Mm -hmm. You know, you work for Google or Microsoft, but you also got to imagine an entry level pay of American dollars is uh, you're rich in Colombia. Oh, yeah. You know, you're a wealthy person. Um, I think I told James one time I met one person and they were bragging about how they had a house with a housekeeper and a security guard and you know their housekeeper took care of them and they had three bedrooms and basically their their 
I mean, they're giving me their life story like they're, look at me, I'm rich, right? I'm a wealthy person in Colombia. I work for an American company. I make $17 an hour. Whoa. And I mean, they said $17 an hour. Like somebody here would say, I just got paid 250 grand a year, right? Like it was like, not just like I crossed 50. Like, I mean, it's like, I am rich and made like 17 bucks an hour. And I'm thinking, I should move to Columbia. Um, this is pretty groovy, but no, I think for a big blind spot for me, there was the guilt and shame um, inherent in kind of the first world culture um, is counterintuitive to what you would think is that joy and happiness that I found in the middle of a valley of um, a, a country in South America. And it made me really begin to question um, what I concentrated on in, in kind of that, that emotional state. Well, I think the huge difference between those things is how success is defined. Yeah. And what we define as success is so far up there that it's easy to feel like you're failing. And even if you feel successful, you can look around and see so many examples of people so much more successful. So then it doesn't make you feel, you know, as successful. Uh, you know, we have a big problem with, you know, not reaching our potential. And, uh, you know, it sounds like the potential there is, sounds pretty awesome, even if you're not necessarily having a home. Well, and I think, again, that goes back to misaligning things, especially, I assume, for others. But for me, I thought success in the American dream was a lot like that commercial that I remember years ago where the guy's like, I belong to the country club, and I have a house and a car, and he's built his yard, and he's like, I'm drowning in debt. Somebody please help me, right? Like, And I thought, wow, that really encapsulates the American experience for so many so well. And for most of my life, I truly believed like, that's where happiness is right it's on top of like this pinnacle and the only way you get there is by getting the house and the car and the country club and you know all of this stuff and the irony is that really all that gets you is a ton of debt and some banker a tremendous amount of money um and you're right you end up with a um a lot of guilt shame depression anxiety all of these things that uh, a first world country should have a lot less of not more of a place with wealth and and, and uh, abundance should have less of those things i think and so i think younger looking at that i wish that i would have understood maslow's hierarchy of needs as a much younger person i wish that i would have understood that happiness is something that you can build towards and that if you take care of if you concentrate on and can um kind of secure different parts of that pyramid that it unlocks more and more potential and ability for you to uh, achieve the kinds of things and outcomes that bring happiness and joy and reward um, versus trying to accumulate things that would eventually somehow magically yield those results. Like eventually there'll be enough mass of, of shiny objects that one day you're going to wake up and be content. And it's quite the opposite I found that uh, for most of the people that I know that have a lot of things, uh, it went the other direction. They went and took care of their security and their, you know, ability to um, have relationships. And they built up a little bit of a nest egg and they went and did things that mattered to them. And they went and tried to make a change. And somewhere along the way, that old adage of do something you love and you'll make money. They found a way to make it true. And 
then they became wealthy and happy. And um, wealth doesn't always end up in that equation. To me, that's the beauty of it. If you chase the the more of the happiness tried trajectory of Maslow's hierarchy, wealth may or may not come. But if you chase wealth, the likelihood of the other side of that equation happening is very, very slim. You ever seen uh, George Carlin's bit on stuff? I don't think I have, but I love George right, Carlin. So I right, might have, but uh, yeah, so, if I have, it's been so long ago. But if Carlin said it, I probably love it. Yeah, write down, yeah. write down that. Whenever you get a chance, is YouTube George Carlin stuff. Uh, uh, the, I'll definitely do it. The second play, uh, thing is the the town I was telling you about is called Levittown. Levittown. Go look. So look that up when you get a chance. Look at okay. the history of that. Uh, yeah, it's yeah, it's interesting. You know, that. Oh, so this is something James brought up. I thought, and I'd like to hear your thoughts on this. You know, everybody keeps, you know, they'll say like, okay, well, when Clinton was in office, we had a surplus, right? And they'll say, well, now we have, you know, whatever. Trump's in office, we have this huge debt, right? And James brought up this. He says, debt doesn't matter as long as your assets outweigh it. Yeah. Yeah. Um, well, and the other thing is we, we, as Americans, we don't do a good job. I don't think of separating deficit and debt. Uh, and I'm not an economist. And so I think your last guess was they probably could talk about that better, <laughs> but, um, as just a person, um, I think that we don't do a good job and, you know, financial literacy on a personal level is something that I think we should get. You know, when you get into business, that's one of the hardest things that I think entrepreneurs have to learn is finance. You know, like we all go in thinking revenue and money are the same thing. Um, and it doesn't take reading a couple of balance sheets to realize they <laughs> are night and day difference. Yeah. I can make revenue look like anything, but I can't change what's in the bank account. Um, right. But uh, anyway, uh, debt and deficit, I think, are two things that we struggle a lot with. It's OK for our country to have a lot of debt. In fact, it's a good thing in, in many ways, I think, for our country to have a lot of debt. It's not good, in my opinion, for us to have a deficit. And I think the quick way to look at that is debt is how much money we owe other countries. And deficit is how much money we spend each year more than we make. And that deficit adds to our debt. And so that debt has to be sold to other countries, too. But a lot of that debt's good, right? Because America is kind of the bank of the world. If I'm a, uh, if I live in a country or in a neighborhood where my cash is not safe and I'm making a little bit of money and I'm storing my cash under my mattress, right? Uh, all of a sudden the bank becomes a good place for me to go put my money because if I get robbed or my house burns down, I've got a place to go get my cash, my money. Well, if you don't trust the bank in town, you might go to like a trusted friend or the neighborhood like drug dealer or whoever, and you say, hey, here's a thousand dollars of my cash. Can I, you know, put this in, in, give this to you, and when I need it back, you'll give it to me. Because I trust you more than I trust keeping it under my mattress. Hmm. Well, technically now that person has a debt to you of $1,000, right? Right. Um, but that's good. You want them to hold it. And so when a country comes to America and says, hey, I got this hundred million bucks, and I'm kind of afraid if I leave this around, like it's going to get pilfered by our Congress or Parliament or the next president or the army and... We want to buy $100 million worth of American T-bills so that 
you know, we can't touch that money for a while, but we know it's safe in America. Well, that's cool that we owe them $100 million. That's good debt. And then we going to use that money to go invest in things where we get a higher ROI. And then when we pay them back the money, like we got to keep the difference. That's good. I think what's bad is when, now that we've begun this thing of spending more money each year than we make. And like you said, Clinton, during, I believe, two of his uh, years in office, maintained a surplus deficit. Uh, we still had a massive national debt. Um, he just didn't grow it two of those years that he was in office. Um, I think as Americans, if we had more financial literacy, we would have a lower tolerance to the deficit spending that we see year over year. Instead of going like, well, but the previous president did it, so therefore it's okay that mine does it. Um, it it's kind of become this, instead of is it right or wrong, it's become, well, that's how we've always done it, or the previous one did it, so you know their cronies got all the money. How come our cronies can't get that money now too? Um, and again, it goes back to if people understood the basics, the basics of how finance works and the basics of how data works, I would hope that we would all be more outraged by the way our balance sheet is being run as a country each year. But most people don't know how to read one. Yeah, I think that's really important. James? But I don't know if I answered your question correctly, other than I ranted I about the difference between the deficit and the debt. So I'm not sure if I did a good job. Oh, on you that. did. I think you did a great job. I agree. I completely agree. Um, so I, um, you know, I, I did this last week uh, with the last uh, guest, and I really liked it. So my question to you now uh, is, what? And I think we covered a lot of it, but what bad advice do you think we're giving kids today um, that is going to hinder their future? And I, and I almost am weary asking that question because we've covered so much of it today. Yeah, um, no, I, yeah. So, I, you know, I think the biggest one is just kind of revolving around that um, you have to know what you want to be when you're going to grow up at 18 and you need to go drop tons of money in debt to go acquire the skills to become that thing. Um, that's, I think, what I think we should challenge. And we live in an amazing modern time uh, where everything is different. Nothing. You don't need to look at your grandparents and say, well, it worked for them, therefore I need to follow that same playbook because that playbook doesn't work anymore. We're in a whole new world and one that's changing more rapidly than the world has ever changed at any other point in recorded history. And that can either be terrifying or exciting. And I would tell young people, it's exciting. You don't have to go into a lot of debt. Maybe you do. It depends on what you want to be. Uh, it's, but it's not your only option. Um, you, you can look into the future and be just about anything. And I don't mean that in a, in a, in a silly way. Um, and the world needs you to go pursue meaningful uh, disciplines where you can go make an impact in the world. And that's where you'll find the most happiness and probably the most financial success. Uh, so go find that, not, not find how do you spend the most amount of money at 18 to, to supposedly make 48-year-old version of yourself better. I like that. Awesome. Is that a wrap? I think that might be a wrap. Cool. Well, but thanks, gents. This was a lot of fun. Uh, hopefully you get at least five minutes worth of uh, material out of this thing. And uh, I really enjoyed it. That was, that was cool. That was fun.
Yeah, man. We, Thank uh, you so much for being on. Oh, sorry for no, cutting you off, Haven. I would just, I would just we love loved having you. you. It was a great conversation. Um, Go ahead, Haven. I was just asking, you know, I got to ask it now. Um, What kind of, how should I put this? Are the companies that are hiring you or, you know, obviously say if these guys get certified by uh, CODA, what kind of diversity incentives, if any, are they trying to push or are you? I don't know. You know, a lot of our, yeah, go, go ahead. ahead. I'm sorry. No, I'm just saying, cause you know, I'm just going off the Google stuff and, you know, they say, you know, they're all just like white and Asian guys basically. Yeah. Um, you know, it's not something that we market really heavily, but, um, a lot of our employer partners come to us because of their diversity initiatives and because of the diversity of our student populations. Now we have a couple of things going for us. Naturally, we're in San Antonio, Texas for our biggest campus. And thankfully San Antonio has a, a fairly diverse population in terms of ethnicity. Um, and the military also brings a lot of people from all over the country that have different backgrounds. And San Antonio is one of the top places that they retire in. And so um, not only do we have proximity to the southern border, which gives us a larger Latino population, but we also have uh, the diversity the military has brought naturally into our community, and we accept GI Bill. So naturally, we have, I think, more than average diversity, um, certainly not, you know, um, whatever, uh, above the national average when it comes to, I think, that amount. I've, as I said, from our very first class, we've always had initiatives to get more women in tech. Uh, I've always found it ironic that 50% of the people that use technology are female, but they're a small percentage of the people that create it. Uh, and so one of the things that we talk a lot about at CodeUp is how do we help make the people that create software and manipulate data um, look like the people that use it? And that means look like everybody. So we also offer some scholarships uh, to the pride community. Um, and we do a lot of support for the pride community. We have special t-shirts that we put out and we participate in events and parades uh, throughout our communities to, to help support uh, what, what has historically been a very underrepresented community inside of technology. Um, and then we also uh, have scholarships for people of color that we uh, haven't made any major announcements about, but the in um, the brothers light of during the black lives matter protests um we've opened the amount of uh, scholarships that we're we're offering um to help bridge that gap more but again it's not something we're pushing as more of a marketing initiative it's just more of an internal mm -hmm. that as we get applicants that meet these criteria there's a more scholarship money available than we had before to continue to try to bridge that gap and again kind of create that world where the folks that are creating software look like the people that are using it which is everybody and every year it's getting better so those are the things that we're doing uh we do end up with better than i guess the more than average diversity in our classrooms uh I had a recent cohort graduate that was 50 percent female i think we're averaging close to 30 something 32 33 percent uh maybe it's 30 percent uh, i haven't seen the, i can't remember the exact most recent numbers and then again our ethnic diversity is higher than normal so a lot of our, our employer partners really appreciate that we're also the only coding boot camp in in our career accelerator in texas offering gi bill and so um, a lot of uh, companies also like hiring veterans and that's part of their diversity initiative is uh, diverse uh, you kind of check two boxes there right and so 
um, it always feels good to be able to get somebody who didn't believe they had a lot of opportunities in life and, and those beliefs could have been very true. They chose to go fight for our country and to join the military. And a lot of that was the promise of the GI Bill and the promise of the future that you'll get post-military. And then they go and they have very traumatic experiences and some of them, and they, they go through some very hard times to earn those benefits that they get. And then they come back and they're different than that 18 year old person that signed up. And while they now have these benefits, they might not have four or five years of their life to go dedicate to college now. They have real life needs and um, the skills that they learn sometimes um, don't translate directly into the modern workforce. And so for us to be able to get some of those folks where the military was that Hail Mary pass, right, for them to elevate themselves in society and to kind of be that finishing program to, to take what they got there and to fulfill that promise of getting them into that high paying job and career in an, uh, an accelerated amount of time feels really good. Awesome. James, any final notes? The, so I'll say this is that when Jason spoke at TEDx, he spoke on entrepreneurship and early adopters in a community. Um, if I were recommending his next TEDx uh, or TED Talk, it would be, I started thinking this earlier in this podcast, but I think you should do one on data literacy and help us as a society understand our data and how we interact yeah. with it. There's a whole I movie on that. There was a whole movie on that on Netflix, by the way. A guy tried to go get his data and extremely unsuccessful. Oh, and there's it's a, not, it's a documentary. No, and I think that's going to be where I'm, uh, uh, what I'm going to take from this experience, James. I think you just pointed it out. Um, I think my blind spot then in 2016 when I did that TEDx talk um, was that very introspective belief that it was the pioneers, it was the entrepreneurs that are coming out here and changing communities. And that's what my whole talk was about. And in the next four years since then, I think what I've realized is exactly what you're talking about. It's the people and the data and the things that everybody does that changes communities. Entrepreneurs are kind of just the weather veins that walk around, like checking everybody's pulse and then, you know, rebroadcasting that into the market somehow. Um, but uh, the blind spot I had did was I thought that the people that were out creating the organizations were the ones that were uh, the prime movers of change in a community. And uh, I think the blind spot that I'm trying to explore and understand is it's really the aggregate of the community that creates that change. And entrepreneurs are one of the groups of people who, who take that and amplify it uh, in a way in which it, it, it becomes real. Awesome. Well, we could talk forever. And if you keep yep. saying things, I'm going to keep coming up with three to five minute, you know, answers. No, and man, that's good. we'll be here. The sun will be coming up and it's going to be awful. So uh, thank you both for having me. This has been a ton of fun. And uh, if you ever have two more hours that you just want to kill recording things on Zoom, uh, you've got my number. This would be a, 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 I really enjoyed this. I like the fact we had actionable steps. That's a big thing I want to come out of this is we have people that are doing things making things happen and we're giving people actionable steps to better your circumstances, your family's circumstances, um, 
you know, every week. So that's my goal. I love it because that's what it's all about. Uh, if we do that every day, we're going to live good lives. So thank, thank you. you both. Thank, thank you, Jason. you so much. All right. That being said, like, subscribe, review. James, it's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for joining mm. me again. As always, I enjoy it and enjoy our time together. All right. Like, subscribe, review. Hit us up on iTunes at James. What are our handles? Your handle? On iTunes, no, uh, on Blind Spotters with a hyphen between it. Blind Dash Spotters. Blind Dash Spotters on iTunes. iTunes. And on Twitter. And Twitter is two Blind Spotters. The number two Blind Spotters. All right. That being said, thank you so much for tuning in. And we That's out. That's a wrap.